0: And here on Fashion by Dad, it's time to talk to Guy Lane from Vita Awakening. Guy, are you with us?
1: I am, and I am on the Gold Coast right now.
0: Oh, well, that's very pleasant. Can you describe the Gold Coast at this black velvet time (laughs) of morning for us?
1: (laughs) Well, I walked down the beach, and I went and got a burger, and I ate half the burger, and I was walking back down to the beach towards all of these white birds who were looking at me, and one of the white birds swooped in over my shoulder and stole the second half of my burger. And that's what's known as a parasitic relationship.
0: (laughs) Indeed. I think the uh, birds are um, on the march. There's a um, (laughs) Southern Cross railway station in Melbourne has a group of uh, seagulls that swoop and, you know, grab stuff (laughs) from people's forks. And the restaurants in the for you there warn you when you pick up your food be careful of the seagulls and yeah, yeah, yeah. the <laughs> first time they said it i thought yeah yeah sure you know i didn't realize <laughs> quite how aggressive they'd become
1: i i the first time i interacted with a, a a stealing bird was actually up in mount glorious and we had this uh uh restaurant a uh, cafe up there and we had like this um break uh, morning tea right and this uh ibis flew down onto the table and stuck its beak into the butter dish and then shook its head and threw butter in all directions and you know I love these interactions with wildlife because the seagull that that, that took my half of my hamburger was a wild animal right it's an interaction with a wild animal and I think that's I mean, I mean, you could say that a seagulls not quite so wild because they are so accommodating, and you find them around human populations. It's not like a great white shark or a kangaroo in the bush, but you know, it's an interaction with a wild animal, and just reminds us that we share this planet with other creatures that have got their own motivations.
0: You know. Indeed, we do. Um, I think the uh, crocodiles in the Northern Territory, in Northern Australia generally, but certainly in the Northern Territory, are an interesting example of uh, that. You mentioned the great white shark, and it's these very big big top-order predators that humans have a huge problem uh, dealing with.
1: Well, uh, yeah, of course. I mean, so you can actually, you know, I mean, a a seagull taking your... Um, hamburger is different to a, a crocodile taking your legs or a shark taking your legs so um and you know and, and, and top water predators are important really important in terms of maintaining uh the balance of an ecosystem they clean up you know they maintain the the ecological system and um and 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 this is re- there's a there's a really interesting science paper which is um I'm just trying to think of the title of it, but it basically talks about how if you look at the way that predators predate and the way that humans predate, humans predate very differently. So predators, like you imagine a, a, a lioness chasing down the gazelles. It's always going to go for the slowest or the weakest or the youngest gazelle. It's not going to go for the prime gazelle. And that's a general trend in nature is that the predators take away the weakest, Right. Whereas, well, They go for uh, when, the easy,
0: the easy when, meat, so to speak.
1: They go for the easy meat, right? And there's a good reason for that because they don't have to expend as much energy and they've got less um, risk of actually getting hurt by fighting the strongest of the clan, right? Whereas we humans, because we've got such all this powerful technology, and this, and for example, with game fishing, you know, with these, with these you know, fishing competitions, you get the first prize for the biggest damn fish. And it's completely upended the whole relationship of predation. Mm. And the science paper actually refers to humans as unsustainable super predators. Unsustainable because the way that we predate is not sustainable in terms of maintaining ecosystems. And super predators because we've got we're advanced with technology, with radar finding gear and monofilament lines and you know stainless steel hooks and so forth and so there's a sort of point at which we've got to start to see ourselves as a part of the system um, and allow the seagulls to take our lunch rather than going out there and slaughtering the biggest fish we can find
0: mm, I remember Valerie Taylor the uh, famous television personality who swims with white sharks and so on telling me about her conversion from uh, competitive spearfishing to nature conversation yeah. And she and her husband, I think his name was Norman, were, you know, world champion spearfishers. And one weekend they went to an island off uh, the Barrier Reef on the outer reef. And I don't know how many sort of um, competitors there were. But, you know, in the tens, 20, 30, 40 competitors competing to see who could catch the most fish in a day. And they stopped in the sort of mid-afternoon thirty, three o'clock because there was no living things left on the island. And she looked, or or in the reef around the island, and she looked at the catch on the decks of the boat and just thought, this is complete carnage. We've just denuded this place of its its life. And she uh, never um, competitively spearfished after that day.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know if it was Valerie Taylor, but I just you're telling me that story. I'm reminded of a black and white photo from that era, um, with uh, these spear fishermen, and they're just surrounded by dead sharks. Right? they've just gone down, and they've gone and harpooned. I think they were like grey nurse sharks. I mean, grey nurse. Like there is no, you don't win a prize for putting a harpoon in a grey nurse shark, right? This thing is a slow, dopey creature that's not interested in biting people and to go and stick a harpoon in it is like zero talent required you know and you know and this is the thing is that you know we we've denuded this planet there's there's studies done that look back at how much fish there was in the seas and different bays and harbors pre white fella coming around and plundering things and it's it's just mind boggling how much wildlife there was on this planet, I mean, I'm not, I'm not I can't quote you figures, but just if you're interested in this stuff, go and read about the bison in America before the white fellow arrived, or even the passenger pig, pigeon. This pigeon that used to fly around, they, they said that the sky used to go black when the passenger pigeons flew, and are practically none now. We, we have the science paper that came out, or the uh, the the World Wildlife Fund report came out in 2020, uh, the Living Planet Report. Says that we've lost 76% of wildlife on the planet since uh, I think the 50s. Right? This, it's just profound what we've done to this planet. And of course most of us are urbanised now, we don't even think about it. We see like uh, 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 a sparrow and we go, oh isn't wildlife great? But we don't have any concept of what we've actually taken away.
0: No, well there's a generational problem there, isn't there? We, we might remember things being better when we were a kid or whatever, um, but that's as far as we can think, and our children never saw what we saw. That's right,
1: that's right. And so we were in this sort of like ning, 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 nose nosedive situation, and we've got no proper frame of reference for it, right? Um, there was a paper, actually, a, science, a interesting science paper, uh, or uh, I was looking at a while ago, where they had this there's this uh, fishing uh, town in Florida or somewhere where they have a, uh, a dock where the fishing boats come in and that's where you hang up your fish and you get your photographs taken. And if and this scientist went back and actually tracked down all of these photographs going all the way back to the 20s or something. And, and when you actually line up these photographs of these guys that came back from these fishing trips boasting about these fish they'd caught, you could see... Year after year after year, the size of the fish got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because they nailed all the big fish.
0: Wow, that and would make a fish, great animation.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, it was profound. And what was interesting, you saw all of the fashions change as well, of course. You got 20 mm-hmm. fashions, 30 fashions. It was, it, was, it was actually really quite stunning. And, and, of course, the big fish are the ones that produce the most eggs. They're the most You've got to leave the big fish in the ocean. And mm. so we humans, are at some point, I mean, I'm not saying we've got to stop fishing. You know, I'm not saying we you know, I'm not to, I'm not saying we should stop doing things that we do. But at some point, you just got to say the big fish are sacred. You don't touch those ones, and we're going to create it as a spiritual mission to leave the big fish. And right, that We'll, way we'll, c- we'll be passionate about protecting them.
0: We'll come back and we'll talk about how we um, frame some of the solutions to these problems we've just been talking about. The uh, right practices underpinned by the right spiritual beliefs and knowledge,
2: the presence of humans on Earth could actually improve conditions for the biosphere. The world could be better off with us. Imagine that. This proposed future state Veda calls the Verdant Age, an age when humans and nature work together to make things better. It's called the Verdant Age because the word verdun refers to trees and the color green these are analogues of life. While the Virgin Age is the core concept of Vita, scientists and others have couched the ideas that underpin it for decades. For example, the Verdant Age might also be referred to as the Ecozoic Era, Ecological Civilization or Gaia 2.0. There is also the concept of the stewardship of the whole Earth system, referred to in the 2018 Transitions science paper. And astrophysicist Adam Frank says that there are many civilizations in the universe, but most don't survive their own versions of the Anthropocene crisis. However, the civilizations that do survive are those that have agency-dominated biospheres, where civilization partners with and synergizes with the natural living systems on those planets. And this is exactly what we humans must do, become partners with our biosphere. But first, we must survive the Anthropocene crisis. To get out of a crisis, we need to know where we are heading. And as a guiding light, the verdant age is a thousand times more profound than the deranged ideas of continually growing the global economy or putting humans on Mars. We don't need to become a multi-planet species if we look after this one.
0: Guy Lane from his video introduction to Vita Awakening. Uh, We have Guy with us here on Fashion by Dad here on 4 Z FM. So, Guy, talk to me about the Verdant Age. How do we turn this ship around?
1: (coughs) Uh, Well, first, let's let's, let's, uh, try and get some definition around the concept of the Verdant Age, right? So I've been involved in the sustainability conversation for over 20 years and I've got an environmental science degree and I hang around with all sorts of people that talk about sustainability. And if you were to ask people, um, uh, uh, you know, sustainability is this idea of something that's able to be sustained and sustained means that it can go on and on and on. But if you were to ask people how long does sustainability last, most people would probably go, oh, 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 like 2100, 2100, as if that is some sort of a terminus date of the human, uh, you know, um, situation on Earth. And when I when I thought about that, I thought, well, how long could we actually reasonably be on this planet if we didn't trash the biosphere, which is our life support system? And when you ask that question, you end up talking to or, you know, reading about cosmology, and cosmology is a study of like stars and how the formation of planets and so forth and what you learn is that our star the sun um, is actually good for another billion or two years beyond which point it will run out of fuel and it will then turn into what's called a red giant phase and it will swell up and destroy all life on earth right it's just some That's just how the physicists understand the universe. So you could actually say that we could have sustainability, but it's only actually going to last up to maybe a billion years or so. That's assuming that we humans don't trash the biosphere in the first place. So the idea of the Verdant Age is this point at which the humans start to learn how to live in balance with nature in a synergistic relationship, which is to say that we benefit and they benefit, a mutualistic relationship, and that will continue on, potentially up for tens or maybe hundreds of millions of years. And I call that the burden age.
0: So do you think that thinking in those long-term billions of years kind of numbers helps people overcome our natural short-term, if it doesn't happen today or next week or within my lifetime, then it's not real? Is that yeah, why you're what I mean, talking about the, yeah. those numbers?
1: Yeah, so so if you if you think about those short term like short termism is just baked into our Western model, like right? so long term a business plan is five years and uh, our political cycle is what three to four years, and so I mean even if you talk to the Chinese and they've got like five year plans and thirty year plans and a hundred year plans, but if you look on the big scale of it, humans have been around for a hundred thousand years. Uh, to, to around two to three hundred thousand years, so so even a hundred year plan is kind of short term thinking in the big picture. So, and some people have said, "Oh, look, people can't get their head around like you know, uh, you know, fifty years or hundred years." Uh, you know, I'm just trying to put an idea out there that that, that we could actually be here for a hundred million years. Throw that out there as an idea, and what does that? How does that change your thinking around? our decision-making today if our aspiration is to be here for 100 million years. Now, I'm not saying that people are going to get their head around that and immediately connect with it because it's such a kind of crazy idea in a way, but it's like a thought experiment.
0: Mm, it certainly it, it, puts some substance to the concept of forever, doesn't
1: it? Well, I mean, forever is this idea of eternity, right? And I and I don't think... And that cosmologists... That, that talk about, like, there is no such thing as forever for life on Earth, right? Because it's, the best of our understanding, scientifically, which is the best of our understanding, is that there will be no life on this planet two billion years hence, period, right? So there's no forever in that regard. So eternity and forever, these are abstract concepts that don't actually connect well with reality. So what we're trying to do is, I'm just trying to create a, a rational frame of reference for the potential of humans on Earth. And the frame of reference says it's not unreasonable to suggest that we could be here 100 million years from now if we don't trash the environment first. And, uh, and of course, assuming that all of these other potential catastrophes like asteroids and volcanic eruptions don't take us out as well.
0: Okay, so we've got a rational frame that helps us uh, deal with the kind of concepts that we you know, used to associate with myths or fairy tales where we do say things like lived happily ever after and so on. So we we can rationally connect to those kind of ideas, those kind of um, framing that happens with most spiritual texts or stories. So you're saying that the Verdant Age gives us a sort of concept that lifts us into uh, that kind of spiritual connection with the world where we can think in the very, very long term.
1: yeah, yeah. so I mean if you think of spirituality as um, uh, I, I mean I, I, I break it down into five themes, right, but one of those themes is answers to life's big questions. you know you know what happens when we die? well, what happens when we die individually is one question, but another question is what happens when Right, our species dies or another way of framing it is this concept of a cosmo vision which is the, the, the idea of the cosmo vision i i use that term i'll define the way that i use that term right because it's not it's not really a very good diction, dictionary term a cosmo vision the way i see it is uh the the way that you see the timeline that you're on okay so if you're a christian person you would see that you know, God invented everything 6,000 years ago and sometime soon Jesus comes back and that's the end of everything and then it's eternity in heaven. That's a a temporal frame of reference and you can see where you are within that. So the Vita Cosmovision says that something happened that was really important called the Big Bang, right? And that, uh, you know, 4.5 billion years ago, the Earth formed, 3.8 billion years ago, life formed on Earth. Uh, sometime in the next two billion years, life will extinguish on Earth. And, and that's really basically the big story. Where are we? We are in the in the sort of the part of that where we've got one or so billion years up our sleeve yet. So that it creates a temporal frame of reference for where we are within the context of a, te- a temporal frame.
0: And right. so ha- what sort of things have come out of that... Approach. Uh, th- have you found ways to help people connect with that concept, and you know, f- produce the kind of f- flourishing, positive ideas that you're hoping that view will produce?
1: Well, I haven't. I haven't had the opportunity to put that in front of enough people to be able to do statistically relevant sampling. But I think what comes out of that idea is that it helps us to simply shift away from our short-term thinking all right and that when somebody says oh it's going to take years and years and years to do this i'm like well yes it is but then that's going to get us to the place where we can advance the verdant age you know (laughs) so so for example you know one of the concerns that we've got in the world is that if climate change continues to the point that it it eradicates a large proportion of food production and that's societies break down that we're not going to have the technological capabilities to properly wind up uh, the 450 nuclear power stations that are around the world. We need 50 years of effort and resources to turn these things off and to, de- and to stabilize the, um, the, the cores right, that need to be cooled down and properly buried, right? So, so, there's, so there's a 50-year horizon that if we get that wrong, could potentially contaminate this planet tens of millions of years so when we start thinking in these long terms it changes our reference to certain things that we do today
0: Mm, i think you'd be interested in a approach called transition engineering so was pioneered or is being pioneered by a a professor in new zealand susan krumdiek Um, she hails from north america originally and so she's working with engineers to try and help them address some of the challenges that we face from uh, you, you know the impact on climate biodiversity falling water tables etc and so forth and so she frames it as okay let's imagine what you want your engineered thing to be like in 100 or 500 years and now start thinking about how you're going to make it survive and participate in, uh, you know, the, lib- the built environment for, for that long. So she's finding taking much shorter view than you're taking, but taking a longer-term view helps engineers uh, reframe their thinking in terms of sustainability of their materials and, um, you know, the kind of short-term thinking that, that dominates a lot of cost-benefit equations.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think that's a positive thing. And and there's a there's a truism uh, that, that you can't teach an engineer philosophy, right? And and so I guess what I'd say about that is that um, you know there's this, there's a conversation that I've been involved in around what's called uh, sustainable uh, asset management, right? So sustainable asset management that says you've got this asset and it's this piece of machinery or whatever it is. How do you sustain it so that it can continue to do what it does for a very, very long time into the future. There's another way of framing the concept of sustainable asset management, which says, is that as- actually advancing sustainability? Is that asset... So, for example, if you've got a machine that's digging coal out of the ground, right? one of those big churning machines that's digging coal out of the ground, sustainable asset management would have you oil that thing and grease that thing so it actually lasts 100 years which is 100 years worth of it digging coal out of the ground which is the worst thing you want to do in terms of sustaining life on earth. So I guess there's this sort of framing that that's important. And what and what I'm trying to do is to create a frame of reference that helps civilization survive tens of millions of years, right? And oiling a coal machine
0: is not one of those things that you'll bring into that equation. So what are the kinds of things that we bring to those equations? How, how do you frame uh, that part? Let's just focus on engineers for a minute because, as you said, we can't teach an engineer philosophy. That means that means That means that we need a philosophical <laughs> yeah. framing that the engineer is comfortable with. And I know we both know quite a large number of engineers. So, and some of those engineers are, you know, working quite hard for sustainable outcomes. Other people, for, you know, find it challenging and difficult. So, you know, we're both practically immersed in um, confronting this issue of t- talking to engineers about sustainability. Has the burdened age helped so far?
1: Well, I guess, I mean, the, verdant, the concept of, of the verdant age is, is powerful when it becomes an article of, of, of spiritual belief. Okay, so we come back to this point of, I mean, engineers are very much root. So there's an idea that, that, that not that knowing or, or uh, um, uh, is a subset of believing. Okay, so there's a frame of reference. Engineers, I think, are very good in the knowing frame. All right. Uh, And because they've got these formulas that help them determine whether a bridge will stand up or not. And generally speaking, the bridges stand up. So there is a truth in the engineering world. There's a truth in the engineering world. But the question is, what are they engineering and what are they engineering for? So, you know, there's a truth in the engineering world about building the coal machine. But the question is, how is that advancing something that is grander than building the actual machine? And so I I guess what I'm trying to create is a frame of reference um, that is grand enough that people can aspire to it that they will then say, okay, I've been tasked with building this coal machine. How does that machine fit within the frame of reference of this thing called the verdant age, right? Well, a coal machine doesn't fit within the frame of reference of the verdant age. The transition away from coal into these other, you know, renewable energies and so forth is consistent with the verdant age. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a belief that there is something better than pursuing, for example, you know the commercial opportunities that come from the advancement of opening a new coal mine, that there is something grander than that, which is this vision, this spiritual aspiration for the ability for the human race to be here 100 million years from now. And in order to advance that, There are certain
0: things that we've simply got to let go. I'm with Guy Lane from Vita, uh, author of Vita Awakening, talking about a spiritual philosophy that will guide us towards living in harmony with uh, nature. And, Guy, you see this as sort of starting with pretty basic life forms. Let's start with, say, plankton, for example.
1: Yeah, look, I'm a strange person that spends a lot of time thinking about plankton, and um, a little project I worked on a few years ago was to create uh, what I call um, a plankton meditation. All right, so I built I built the first version of plankton meditation. The idea of plankton meditation was to sort of fuse the idea of meditation. When I when I talk about meditation, I'm talking about this idea of concentrating intently on one thing right so you know if you think of a meditation with the lotus flower which might be a zen a zen buddhist sort of thing where you basically study the flower and then you've got um sort of like uh uh, um there's other meditations where you concentrate on your breath and there are other meditations where you concentrate on your thoughts I think that's called mindfulness there's a whole range of different meditations and they and they I think the commonality to it and I'm not the expert on this but I think the common in, commonality is that you focus on something right so what I wanted to do was to create a meditation where you focused on learning about environmental science and so the if you actually go onto the YouTube and type in the words plankton meditation you'll find this thing and what I did was I got about 100 photographs or 50 photographs electron microscope photographs of phytoplankton which are the tiny tiny plants that live in the ocean and then I set that to music this sort of like nice meditational music and on the top of that I did a narrative like a guided meditation which was explaining how the plankton um, helped to create clouds. And so there's this concept that I repeat over and over again, which is that plankton make the clouds. And the idea was to try and fuse this sort of spiritual aspect or this sort of opening or awakening or this connection to the, the deeper part or the emotional part of us with some scientific understanding of how the world works, which is that the little tiny plants that float around the out, in the ocean, some of them produce uh, a molecule called dimethyl sulfide, which is a gas. And that gas leaves the ocean, goes into the air, it gets broken down by ultraviolet radiation to release sulfur. And that sulfur molecule that's released from the DMS gas um, attracts water vapor to create a water droplet. And that water droplet, multiplied 100 million billion times, creates the clouds. And so the plankton creates the clouds, the clouds that rain on the ground that grows the crops that are our food. So the idea was to sort of use this idea of meditation uh, as a way of creating both a spiritual um, awakening to nature as well as a rational understanding of nature and so uh, the, the the first one is the first of a series and the idea is to have a whole bunch of those uh, looking at different aspects of our relationship to the planet.
0: That um, connection of rationality to spirituality would appear to be quite a challenge on the face of it. Um, spirituality is a different dimension than rationality. Do you just want to talk to that?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's that's simply a misnomer. I mean, if you were to do a tally up of um I've been to a couple of shops, right? There's one up in Mullaney, and there's one in, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the hills behind Melbourne, uh, the Dandenong Ranges. Uh, there's, really, there's a couple of shops that I've been to which would sort of be described as spiritual shops where you go and buy spiritual stuff. And when you go into these spiritual stuff shops, there's all of this stuff. You've got a whole suite of crystals. You've got a whole bunch of skulls. You've got a whole bunch of Christian mythologies with angels and so forth. There's all of this stuff in there. But what there isn't in there is a little section where you can go and buy a native plant that you can plant in your house. right? And what there isn't in there as well is a science book that explains chemistry, that explains physics. So there is this disconnect in the Western world between spirituality and science and the physical understanding of the world now that that is just how things are but that is not because spirituality is instinctively this detached detached from reality it's just how. what i'm trying to create through vita is a spiritual frame of reference which is grounded in the real world that we live in And in that way, we might be able to use spirituality as a tool to fix the problems, the real problems that we have. And at the moment, spirituality is basically this rubbery, amorphous thing that doesn't actually really fundamentally do anything apart from make people feel better, which is good in itself, but not in the face of an ecological crisis, which is going to take down the human
0: system. Do you think that historically that's true? I mean, a lot of spirituality has emerged as ways of explaining the universe, you know, the, I mean, I, the I, cosmos I would, and the impact on life, things like life and death. It was always the role of the shaman or, you know, the priestly caste to explain those kind of big questions.
1: Yeah, and, and so, I mean, let's just take a step back into sort of times beyond the modern times with, traditional cultures like the First Nation cultures who would have done their very, who would have grounded their spiritual views in the reality of living on, 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 on in the earth, okay? So I was talking to a mate of mine recently and he was telling me he'd been up with some Aboriginal uh, uh, people up in, um, in Queensland and they were saying that they had, a, they had these totems, right? These totem animals and they didn't eat those totem animals. They didn't hunt them. There were two different animals. Now, the neighbouring Aboriginal groups ate those totem animals. So what you've got is basically this terrain in which this animal is actually protected. And, th- and that is exactly the model they, that they use with scientifically validated mechanisms for fisheries management, where if you do a fisheries, like a, a no-take zone, like a national park fishery zone, it, it becomes the spawning ground for the fish to go into the places where you can take the fish. Now, if the whole place was a full take zone, the fish would all just disappear. So there, so what I'm saying is that the spirituality of traditional people is grounded in the reality of dealing with an ecosystem, whereas the spirituality of Western people is just this, it, it's this smorgasbord of ideas that has, apart from some fragmentary references practically no relationship to the living planet of which we are dependent as our life support system
0: so why wouldn't we just humbly go and ask them to explain to us how to do it
1: well i think we should but and there is a problem is that we have destroyed the habitat okay so you could ask the your local aboriginal People, the, the 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 traditional owners of the land upon which you stand, how one might conduct themselves ecologically, right? But the trouble is that the landscape's changed because we built a city over it. <clears throat> so we've now. So the concern that we've got now is to try and uh, understand that native wisdom and adapt it to the 21st century, with 6.8 billion people, of which around a quarter of them. Live a Western, high-consumption Western lifestyle, and find a way to tune that traditional wisdom into the modern age. And that's where that's what Veda is trying to do: is to try and create that referential frame. Okay, I can't I can't go down. I can't go and talk to regular Western people, and 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 use uh, the 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 process of creating a boomerang as a frame of reference to help them understand how to deal with modern western life
0: no but right? you could it's, but you could take the concepts of vita to you know every group of elders that you can find and discuss with them how they would frame that so that they are leading the project
1: yeah and that that's absolutely right and and so and so what what we what we want to do with vita at the moment i mean vita has been worked up on, over the last 5 years uh Basically, in in southeast Queensland, right. So, what I want to do moving forward, as we as we uh, spread the idea far and wide, is to start bringing in traditional wisdom from all around the world. So, to try and create a global, globalised intersection between um, traditional wisdom and the best understanding of how to live on this planet in the western world
0: you are on fashion by dad on the zeds for FM. I'm Jeff Ebbs and I'm joined by Guy Lane from Vita and we've been discussing the integration of western concepts of spirituality and traditional um, approaches to religion and understanding the cosmos So, Guy, there's a range of um, traditional and, you know, indigenous religions from all around the world. Uh, Do any of them have a particular resonance for you with uh, the Vita project?
1: Well, First Nations um, uh, culture and spiritual views uh, see uh, this, this, this oneness, this connection with the forest, for example, there are people that that grow in the forest you know see themselves as a part of the forest so, so this concept of oneness um and so 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 in a way, there's this sort of um this that across the whole spectrum of first nations people there's this commonality all right but i tell you one place where. It shows up in a really nice integration between that traditional oneness idea and a modern Western society is in Japan with the Shinto religion. And I'm very interested in integrating Shinto ideas into Vita. And I think it's a really clever way of connecting the traditional into the contemporary, if you like.
0: Well, we've certainly had concepts like forest bathing, and uh, the uh, intense urban forest projects that are coming out of Japan.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's uh, people that uh, now I've not been to Japan, and I've not been to Japan and studied Shinto, so I'm a bit of an outsider. But I've got a, I've got like a, a deep affinity to it. And then when I've got the resources. That's what I'll be doing, is to going and soaking it up to in, to infuse it into Vita. But let me explain a few things, which I think are very valuable. So, um, in Japan, one of the the common um, images of Japan is this red uh, archway over a uh, like a, a gateway, and it's called a torii. Uh, and T O R I I. And the torii was really based, is like an archway that says that when you go through this thing, you go from the Uh, profane, which is the normal world, into the sacred world. So a Tori is like a gateway into a sacred space. And in Shinto, they have this concept called kami, K-A-M-I, and it doesn't perfectly translate into English, but it's like the idea of certain things have spirits. So you might walk along the road or down a path and you'll see a Tori, which means that if you pass through the Tori, you're going into a place where there is a kami, and kami is this sort of this spirit. So it might be, for example, a waterfall or uh, a grove of trees, or it might be a Shinto temple. And I'll give you an example of how that is. And, and the Japanese people, are, um, whilst they don't acknowledge them or recognize themselves to be religious... Most of them actually follow what would be regarded as religious practices, which is they would approach the uh, Tory and they would bow and they would enter in and they would behave differently within the sacred space, which is to say that they wouldn't swear and run around and throw stuff around, which would not be an not unacceptable behavior in the, on the world outside. I just want to frame this in a way. I was in a national park recently. I think it's called Dorigo National Park. It's up behind Bellingen near Coss Harbour. Yep. Correct me on the name. And there was a waterfall, and I wanted to go and see the waterfall because I really wanted to go to the waterfall to have a, a, a time of quiet contemplation around this, you know, spectacular natural event. But when I got there, there was all these people, and they were yelling and hollering, and they were waving their hands around, in order that their friends on the other side, you know, would get the photographs. And it was, this, it, it was actually the noisiest place. It was the place where people were making the most noise out of this journey, this walk through the forest to get to this waterfall. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if there was a big sign-up that says, you know, S-T-F-U, around the waterfall. Like, let's create some sacredness around the waterfall. Well, we don't have the concept of sacredness around waterfalls in the western world whereas in japan they have this thing called shinto where they put a little sign up called the which is the archway that tells you that beyond that place it is sacred and should act accordingly and i think that if we were to try and bring that concept into the west it would help to ground western people into a nature-based spirituality
0: Excellent. Thanks for that, Guy. I'm going to leave our conversation this week on Fashion by Dad there. Perhaps we can come back next week and continue.
1: Absolutely. Look forward to that.